Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show, Monday to Friday, 10 till 1. You can listen on your DB radio, on your smart speaker, or on your Times radio app. We bring you politics like the boring bits for three hours every day, including a midday update, half-hour news bulletin. We talk about politics. We have a laugh as well. Join me live if you can. But we bring you the best bits on the podcast. Coming up today, as Donald Trump is indicted again, this time over possible espionage and all those documents that were found in his house, we take a look at the huge field of people running to try and beat him to become the Republican candidate for the White House. That's coming up in just a moment, including with Sean Spicer, his former press secretary. We'll have the Commons panel in just a moment. But first, as we always do at the end of the week, let's take a look at what we learned this week. Firstly, are you OK? Yeah, I'm fine. Uh, we learned that George Eustace really struggled with Liz Truss. You always had that sense, if you're trying to explain something technical and complicated to her, that she just wasn't even listening. She was just thinking about what she was going to say next. We learned that Martin Frizzell, editor of This Morning, is auditioning to be the show chef. Do you like aubergine? Do you? Is there a toxic work environment? Do you like aubergine? Because I don't like aubergine. We learned that Lindsay Hoyle had big news that was worth delaying the start of deputy PMQs for. I want to tell the House about the success last night of the House of Commons teams in the tug of war. We beat the House of Lords. Or nil. <laughs> uh, then we learned that Oliver Dowden's been looking at Angela Rayner's expenses. She has now purchased two pairs of noise-cancelling headphones on expenses. If I had to attend shadow cabinet meetings, I think I'd want to tune them out too. We learned that Tory MP Tobias Elwood once came up with an invention worthy of Dragon's Den. My big project was the cat-friendly rocking chair. Essentially a rocking chair you see could be very dangerous to a cat's tail if it's in the wrong place. We learned that the COVID inquiry is going really well and the cabinet office position is very clear. Well, the, 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 the position is that the cabinet office is working out its position. We learned that after previously forgetting his name... Well, she... Sunuk is now the Prime Minister. This week, Joe Biden forgot Rishi Sunak's job. Well, Mr. President, Mr. President, I just, I just demoted you, Mr. Prime Minister. It's great to have you back. He hadn't been before. And we learned that Tees Valley Mayor Ben Houghton isn't going to answer questions about whether he'll have a gong from Boris Johnson. Well, it's like, you know, if my mother was a bicycle, would she have a bell? And that is what we learned this week. Right, let's take a look at what's going on in the news with our Friday columnists. The columnists with Knight at the Marriott, India Knight and James Marriott on Times Radio. 
Japan. It's lovely on a Friday to say hello, India Night. Hi, Matt. How are you? I'm Joe. I'm not bad. I'm not bad. I'm in quite a, a, a silly mood. Good, I'm good. Gonna say, I'm going to say. And uh, talking of silly, here's James Marriott. I was hunched on my bedroom floor with my laptop, frantically battering away at my column. All right, James, but how are you? <laughs> I'm, I'm well. I have battered away at my column this week, which is always a relief to get uh, that out of the way with. And what a column it was. In fact, look, why don't we talk about it? Why don't we talk about it, James? Because you, you wrote about how uh, you thought modern technology is doing us more harm than good. Uh, basically, you get too many emails. Yeah, this is this is this is the root of it. Yeah, uh, I'm not I'm not at all a fan of all your of all your readers trying to invent new gadgets because I th I think we have I think we have too many already. My column was about how I think that an awful lot of things that were invented for us out of Silicon Valley aren't actually to make our lives any better, but actually are to profit people in Silicon Valley and often end up making our lives worse and more annoying. It came out of the new Apple VR headset, and I'm just not convinced that anybody needs virtual reality. I think normal reality is perfectly good. And then I sort of just started ranting from there. And I ended up, as I think you always do when you end up ranting about pointless technology, about email, which is just the most time-wasting, inefficient way to communicate. And as I said in the column, I think it would actually be better if we all just communicated by carrier pigeon. And I think we could get a lot more work done that way and communicate more efficiently. And you, you, you singled out in particular, sort of. I think, but maybe this is a particular issue if you are a journalist, because once you get on somebody's list, I discovered once I was listed as being interested in politics and health appliances or something. So I'd get sort of PRs sending over, oh, you know, are you interested in the government, but also uh, sort of weird gadgets. And you, you've been offered some hair cutting scissors. Yeah, I got an email saying. As a prominent journalist in the field of health, beauty, and skincare, would you like to promote these professional haircutting scissors to your readers? I mean, you can't. You listeners to Times Radio won't be able to see me, but if if you look at my, if you look at me now, I actually do look like I'm in need of professional haircutting scissors, probably. Um, <laughs> but it's not really my area of expertise. In fact, my my the the kind of thatch of hair on my head is proof that it's not my area of expertise, probably. Now, um, uh, India, because, well, in your time, you've covered uh, the news, you've covered beauty, uh, you'd write about food. You must be inundated by terrible PR emails. It is a nightmare. <laughs> they literally never stop. Hundreds, hundreds of them a day about things that are only tangentially relevant or complete or, or just simply not relevant at all. And then people follow that follow them up. So people say, I sent you a press release about ingrown toenails. Are you going to cover our ingrown toenail product? And uh, you know, you don't want to seem incredibly rude by just ignore I, although I do ignore them now, but there was a time when I tried to reply to everybody saying, sorry, I don't do that anymore. Or, That's not my area. Or please, 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 please take me off your list. And they never take you off your list. And so now I block delete at the end of the day. I block delete literally hundreds of emails. And of course, in there are emails from people I do actually want to hear about. So I miss loads of stuff. It drives me nuts. <laughs> it drives me crazy. I can't bear it. It ruins my life, actually. Email. I hate it. Do you know what, when we done you we were talking about this, I, I think it was, it was only earlier this week, I had an email chasing up, was I interested in the press release below? Uh, and I'm not even going to mention them because obviously then it will have worked. But it, they describe themselves as the world-renowned legal brothel located just outside Las Vegas, offering an unforgettable experience. It is upcoming prom night extravaganza. 
this Saturday. And what what list have I showed an interest in, which is thought, I know what Matt Shorty wants. He wants a prom night extravaganza at a Las Vegas brothel. (laughs) The the solution that I think is is a good one is, when occasionally you email um, very prominent people who are obviously getting loads of communications, and you just get an automatic out-of-office reply from some people saying, I get so many emails, it's incredibly unlikely I'll ever manage to reply to yours. Sorry. And I think that's sort of, I don't know, and that might be a way of dealing with it, just acknowledging that you're never going to Surely, you're never AI, gonna reply. AI, instead of like mocking up uh, pictures of the Pope wearing a big coat or Donald Trump being arrested, surely AI can sort your emails out. They must be able to tell. Anything which says, I'm just reaching out about an exciting new product could be put oh. in, a, in a separate little folder that you could look at when, you know, when there's nothing on the telly. There must be a way, because I think you're right, James. You write about Slack. We, I, we, we've got Slack at the Times. I remember there was a great excitement of introducing Slack. Email was dead. All the communication was on Slack. I can't get head and tail now of what on earth is going on in Slack because everybody's now in every group, so nobody comes yeah. across anything. It's just an extra nightmare, I think. But, I mean, personally, why don't we all just go and talk to each other in person? I think that surely that's got to be the answer eventually. Says the man who told me he was coming into the studio today, and instead is on Zoom. Well, I know, but the boy, the guy's coming to the boiler, so I can't make it into the office. I've forgotten about that. Can't you fix the boiler, James? You've always struck me as a man who's quite handy. I think I would make the boiler much, much worse than it already is. You're right, though, that more communication in person is better. But also, I think, I think we should all just stop pretending uh, that press releases work. I think that's the key thing. If somebody they says drive this, journalists mad. They never work. Very, very... I've, I mean, how many stories have you written as a result of a press release? None. You know, they're just... But you know what? It's the PR, it's the lobbying industry. The whole thing is a nonsense. So, in fact, I think I was lobbied this week. I was at an event, and I was chatting to someone, and they introduced me to someone else, this woman, and uh, used to be a journalist, now works for some organ- lobbying public affairs company I've never heard of. And she started going on about the... Tories and the Labour Party and business and um, uh, how the Labour Party was so terrible with business. And then she just kept mentioning this company's name, just dropping it into conversation in quite an aggressive way. And I thought, I know you're going to go off and bill this company now and say you've spoke to two people mm. from the Times. Which mm. is a nonsense. I can't remember what the company it's was. Or what you, yeah, it's a nonsense. I remember actually, um, uh, I think it was Jeremy Hunt once told me, it was a nightmare being at party conference where walking around party conferences, health secretary... <laughs> Uh, PR people would constantly bump into him deliberately and go, oh, I'm so sorry, so sorry, Jeremy. Oh, actually, while I've got you, um, can I just talk about this cream you put on your bum? And then they'd go off and bill the company and say they'd spoken to Jeremy Hunt. So he was sort of ricocheting around the place. Anyway, I'm glad. So so, so we've gone from James gets a couple of emails he doesn't like to let's abolish the lobbying industry. (laughs) Let's never talk to each other again in any form. (laughs) Now, let's talk about your actual area of expertise, uh, India, because you, you know about food. It's a scorching barbecue weekend. How do we make sure we have a proper barbecue this weekend? God, I'm so excited for the weather. I'm completely beside myself. Um, <laughs> what, you, what you do, what you do very basically is you don't be a kind of macho man in a comedy uh, apron burning everything to death so it's black on the outside and raw in the middle. The way you avoid doing that is by making a two-zone fire. So you bank all your fuel on one side, which yes. is 
boiling hot. And then obviously you've then got a middle bit, which is less hot and a, a, another bit, which is relatively cool. And so anything that you want, anything that cooks quickly, you put above the fuel. Anything like, a, I don't know, a whole chicken, which is very nice in a barbecue, that's going to take longer, you put in the middle bit. And anything that you want to kind of effectively slow cook, you put in the cooler bit. And then everything is cooked properly and you don't have to eat incinerated sausages. Also, my good piece of advice is that, which sounds so disgusting, but you can't <laughs> taste it in the food, is that mayonnaise from a jar stops things sticking. You need a very clean grill to stop things sticking. Oh, but if see. you so what you cover yeah, the grill you, you in mayonnaise. Anoint, yeah, you anoint your 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 whatever you're cooking. It works very well with fish, which notor is notoriously sticky on grills. You anoint it in a thin coating of well, actually not that thin, in quite a generous coating of mayonnaise. You put it on, it cooks perfectly, and it doesn't stick. That is a top tip. Now I take it a slight, a top tip. I take a different. I I I bank my because I've got little um. In the in the bottom of the barbecue, little things that stick up, and I, I put all the hot all the coals in the middle, up through the middle, ah, awesome and then you put everything around the outside. One of those round barbecues, everything around the outside, and the lid. Very good. The lid is king. Oh, the lid is so important because then you've just got a, a nice oven, and it cooks. Yeah, yeah cooks lovely. Yeah, James, the lid turns everything into an oven. The lid, you 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 must have a lid, James. unless you're <laughs> unless you're being all like all like cavemanish and just like cooking a hunk of meat on an open on an open flame. But lids are brilliant. Do you know what? I, I, honestly, it was the highlight of, of this year for me. Last last weekend, last weekend, we had our we have a, a annual barbecue at our house. Mm. It started as a housewarming ten years ago, and did the same thing. And this year, I'd got the whole thing the the coals in the in the the thing that stands on the you know the vertical thing, and you fill it up with coals, and I lit the, it. The starter, which yeah, is starter, brilliant. The yeah, starter, chimney thing, and I lit it. Yeah. It lit in one go. The whole thing went up. It burnt. Tip them out, lovely. At no point did I have a group of blokes down and go, oh no, I'll tell you what you want to do. You probably want to put a bit of petrol on that. Want to put a bit of petrol? Oh, but you don't nice want to do that. Oh, it's gone out. Yeah, there's none of that. James, where were you? I can't, I, my sense is you're not a big barbecuer. No, I'm not, but I would, I would have um, a banana uh, wrapped in foil and stuffed with uh, chocolate buttons. We tried to do that, and it was an absolute disaster. I think it was too hot. What happened? It was sort of too hot, and the chocolate sort of turned to little fossils. It, it sort of didn't melt. Oh, it went straight to, yeah. Well, I'm glad I wasn't invited to your annual barbecue extravaganza in that case. Yeah, it's, it's, very, it's, it's, a, it's a non work, but by and large, it's a non work, <laughs> a non work event. Um, but maybe, maybe, maybe you can come for barbecue after we go temping bowling. Yes. I. <laughs> I can't remember what was it you mentioned this la last week. What was the what? Why did I promise you a trip temping bowling? I can't even <laughs> told me live on air that me, you, India, and Danny Finkelstein were all going to go temping bowling and have pizza, and I've been dreaming of it ever since. Right? Can we make it happen, please? Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> let's um, let's get that. That's content. I don't know how we make that work on the temping bowling <laughs> on the radio, but we've made worse <laughs> things work on the radio now. Uh, let's turn our attention to a large seaweed barrier on Weymouth Beach, which has left people unwilling to visit. The council's refusing to remove it, even though it keeps uh, its the kelp is rotting and really smells. Uh, are you fancy going there, James? Well, I, I do sympathise this problem. I grew up by the coast uh, in Whitley Bay. And oh, of course, which is why you've got that very strong Geordie accent that we've, that we've talked about before. Why I like it, um, but the seaweed 
can be properly disgusting. Um, and when you get flies, when it's hot, and the flies bursting everywhere, and it's just, oh, James, James, I mean, James, it's James, kind James, of James, 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 James. You've gone with. from you've gone from being a Geordie to being a robot. We'll try and get you back in a second. Um, let's speak to Times Science Editor Tom Whipple. Is going to explain why it smells. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't realise that was my role in this conversation. It's because it's, it's vegetable matter and it's rotting. <laughs> and it's hot and things are eating it and that's what happens. But that is, that is the, um, the nature of nature. And, and this has a role in the ecosystem like everything else. And there are, I mean, my, my favourite part of this story was, was hearing the accounts of some children who were reportedly in tears because of <laughs> the seaweed. Wow. Um, it is, smells so bad it makes children cry. <laughs> but, you know, that, that, that is what happens beside the sea. Um, and the sea has seaweed, and we should be very grateful that the sea has seaweed because it performs very many goes. Uh, what I would say is if they wish to do something practical with this seaweed, they should be bringing in cows because we know that cows eat seaweed, and when they do, they don't fart. And this is uh, one of the most important and promising um, avenues of research in agricultural science because we want to create non-farty cows because they are responsible for a large proportion of the methane emissions from agriculture. Um, so they could do something useful with it that would make happy cows and, and less cryy children. I mean, my experience of cows, Tom, is they're not without the, uh, the smells of their own. Well, that's true, but partly that's because they're eating grass and not seaweed. So you make more fragrant cows, more fragrant beaches. <laughs> India, if you turned up to the beach for a nice day in this hot weather you'd be looking forward to and came across a huge pile of smelly seaweed and some cows, would you be pleased? I'd be delighted. I love the <laughs> idea. I love the idea of cows on the beach. And I think um, Tom has it. I think that's a very ingenious proposition. And also, you know... I, yeah, I think this is so silly. This is like asking the Weymouth Council to do something about the seaweed. It's like, it's like asking the council to come along in boats and scoop up jellyfish or fish. Or, or It's just so ludicrous. Beaches are living things. They, sometimes a lot of tons of seaweed gets washed up. Maybe it's stinky. Maybe there are flies. Maybe it's slimy. But, you know, that's just, that's just what it's happens. I think, yeah. I think Weymouth Council are really commendable, actually. They they put out a statement saying, you know, we appreciate it's unsightly, da-di-da-di-da, but we, we're keen on preserving the ecosystem's integrity, avoiding harms, important resource for marine invertebrates and food source for many species. And they also say it's important to note we're, striving, we're not striving to provide a synthetic controlled swimming pool experience. So I say I'm right behind them. It's a shame about the seaweed. It'll be washed away again soon. And there we are. But But cows would be great. James, do you fancy going to the seaside with some cows? Yeah, I think I think that sounds excellent. I think India is so often speaks so much sense. You know, it's a privilege for us to get to use the beach. We can't expect to turn the beach into a swimming pool. We have to take nature as we find it. I wouldn't I wouldn't really want to live in a kind of in a world where we have to pretend that nature isn't full of, you know, disgusting, horrible things that are sometimes inconvenient. Well, it's the same as people who move to the countryside and complain about the, the, the strong smell of agriculture. Yeah, the strong smell of fertiliser, or there are too many nettles, or this, there are brambles along this path. You know, get over it. We'll yeah. go to centre parks. Where are there pigs on the beach? Is it somewhere in the Bahamas? Is it? <laughs> well, I was just thinking, maybe this links back to the conversation we're having about barbecues. If you could go to the seaside 
and, uh, you know, have a swim in the sea, and then you come out, and then you can, you know, get a get a pig on the on the on the spit roast. Then murder the beach pigs. That's not good. <laughs> <laughs> now, Tom Whipple, I bet you know a thing or two about the science of a barbecue. <laughs> I mean, I but beyond the fact that that it cooks things and uh, denatures the proteins, um, I mean, yes, it makes tasty food. Uh, I, I missed the science of barbecue chat, and I'm sorry about it. But what what contribution would you like me to make to it? Well, it turns out India's a real expert, and James really isn't, which may or may not come as a huge surprise to you. No, yeah, well, I, I, I have actually recently um, capitulated and bought a gas barbecue. Right, right, the... cut him off, cut me off. Oh, come We're on. not having that sort of filth here. <laughs> Sicko. <laughs> well, no, I, I, I sort of agree, but the, the, the closer you get to just having a cooker outside, the more absurd you can. Uh, the whole experience feels, but then the, you have got a cooker inside, so the whole experience is is, is manifestly absurd anyway. Indian Night, James Marriott, and Tom Whipple there, and of course you can read them all in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, can anyone or anything stop Donald Trump? You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. So I just want to tell you, I'm an innocent man. I did nothing wrong. And we'll fight this out just like we've been fighting for seven years. It would be wonderful if we could devote our full time to making America great again. I'm innocent and we will prove that very, very soundly and hopefully very quickly. Thank you very much. Oh, my God. Yep, he's in trouble again. Former US President Donald Trump says he's now been indicted in the criminal investigation to hundreds of classified documents he's accused of taking to his Florida home after leaving the White House. It means he's now the first Prime Minister, to uh, first President, to face federal charges, state charges, to be indicted twice, to be impeached twice, and the first President to be held civilly liable for sexual assault. And yet, he's still the front-runner to secure the Republican nomination in the next race for the White House. Is there literally nothing he can do to damage himself among his supporters? Half of Republicans still want him. He's well ahead of his nearest rival, Ron DeSantis. And I can promise you this, you ain't seen nothing yet. Trump's former vice president, Mike Pence, joined the race this week too. Before God and my family... I'm announcing that I'm running for President of the United States of America. The former UN ambassador, Nikki Haley, is running. When you kick back, it hurts them more if you're wearing heels. There are about a dozen of them all together in the running. So today we ask, can any candidate or any court case stop a rerun of 2020? Well, this week, the race for the White House has really heated up. We've got Donald Trump facing a fresh legal battle that will probably only galvanise his base. We know that Joe Biden is running again at the ripe old age of 80, even if he now struggles with remembering what it is that Rishi Sunak does. Well, Mr. President, Mr. President, I just promoted you, Mr. Prime Minister. It's great to have you back. Yeah, so will it be Trump-Biden all over again? Back in 2020, I spoke to the election whisperer Rachel Bitterkoffer and Professor Larry Sabato, one of America's most respected political analysts, and they gave me their thoughts about that election. His name might as well be on the ballot, not Trump. 
It's yeah. Trump versus not Trump. And here's where Biden, not having a strong personality, helps him. Yeah. Uh, he's bland. That's exactly the kind of candidate that does better against someone like Trump. And we're doing this pandemic differently than every other nation where we're just sacrificing by the thousands Americans instead of dealing with the pandemic in the way that other countries did. And that's a product of this polarization. So we thought we'd get them back together again uh, for some analysis on the current race. Is it unusual to have so many candidates in the running at this stage? So um, uh, American political science scientists like Larry and I are going to look at a field like with 10 Republicans and understand that really it's a field of two or three, because it, even though we are very tuned into politics, we know who Nikki Haley is and Tim Scott, most Americans actually don't. And you can see this in, in data from polling that is um you know, of trying to measure favorability, you'll see that people like Donald Trump or Mike Pence as the vice president or Ron DeSantis, who has inserted himself so effectively over the last three or four years into national headlines, is well recognized and voters know who they are. But most of this other field will begin and end in obscurity. So this is a, you know, to Larry and I, we, we have probably have our, I'm assuming he has his eye on two or three and, and so do I. Okay, but let's, you've dropped some names in there. We'll park Donald Trump for a moment and come back to him in a set. Let's talk about some of the others. Uh, let's start with Ron DeSantis. What do we need as Brits? Do, do we need to get to know this guy? Has he got any chance? Is he, as some uh, paint him, sort of Donald Trump without the baggage? Is he more interesting than that? Is he more extreme than that? Is he is he actually not as interesting as all of that? What do you think, Larry? Well, he's clearly the second place runner right now who knows what's going to happen but i gotta insert something here for all these republicans including desantis even though he's in the 20s while trump is you know upper 40s low 50s the the reason they're in there is because they're betting that donald trump will be eliminated from the contest one way or another that's what they're betting on and without trump being removed uh, it's much more difficult to see anybody else being nominated, even DeSantis, though he would have the best chance. DeSantis likes to uh, suggest privately that he is Donald Trump without the baggage. I would say he's Donald Trump with different baggage. And like I said, he's on what, about 20, uh, low 20s in terms of support. It's quite a big old drop there when you come down to, well, Mike Pence has officially thrown his hat in the ring. Some of the polls I was looking at, he was on sort of 5 or 6%, Rachel. Why is he, given all the history between him and Donald Trump, uh, July the 6th, uh, and then weirdly he then comes out and backs Donald Trump over over some of the allegations more recently. What's going on in the weird relationship between Donald Trump and Mike Pence? Yeah, I mean, Pence is, is, is sensing a weakness. Let I me mean, think about it. Yes, it, it is one thing for voters to hypothetically say, no matter what happens with Donald Trump, I'm going to stick with him, right? But if we fast forward into the fall of 2023, as the primary calendar starts to become eminent, if Donald Trump is charged with something so severe as espionage you know, charges, then he's going to start to feel very risky to people. And both Pence and DeSantis are gambling or counting on the fact that once those voters do become risk adverse, they will need somewhere to go. And the place that they should go is either going to be under Pence's regime, which is 
you know, very evangelical culture war, but um, evangelical Christian based or DeSantis, who's really taken this mantle of war on woke and defined his entire presidential run upon it. Uh, his slogan is Florida's where woke goes to die, that he's going to make America Florida. And I, you know, I think he has taken a gamble that he's positioned himself to be the most MAGA rific candidate that the um, base can turn to if they become doggish or bearish on Trump's ability to win. Larry, it's quite a leap, isn't it? If Trump drops out of the race, to think that the person that all the hardcore Trump supporters are going to rally around is Mike Pence, who was the guy who wouldn't break the rules to keep Donald Trump in the White House. I'll be honest, I think the only person who thinks that is Mike well, Pence. <laughs> what, what do you think, Larry? I, I agree with uh, Rachel, basically. I don't think Pence has that much of a chance. Obviously, the, the split between them, they had been as close as twins, uh, Siamese twins, really, until January 6, 2021. And, you know, I think that would be operative for any two people if one, one uh, of the twins uh, set a mob on fire to hang the other twin, that would tend to separate the two. Uh, <laughs> it so, would certainly cause a rift, a, a rift for most, most, most siblings. You, you know what's interesting, though, as Mike Pence announced while declaring that Donald Trump was not in any way deserving of a second term as president. When asked later, if Donald Trump became the nominee, would you support him? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's just this tribal aspect of American politics is really daunting and disturbing. So we jump from Mike Pence then to even lower levels of support and even name recognition. Um, Rachel, you, you mentioned a couple of them. Nikki Haley, former governor of South Carolina, Donald Trump's ambassador to the UN, Tim Scott, the only black Republican US senator, but not barely known outside. I was going to say outside his home state, but probably barely known outside his own home. Um, and then we come down to Asa Hutchinson. I, I confess that's a name that even that I'm, I'm struggling with. Doug Burgum. Do, who do we need to get to know out of this race? Is there anyone that's interesting in this, Rachel? Yeah, I would argue that that Mike Pence is polling effectively right now because he was the vice president. And so when you think about how a normal Republican voter gets this list and who you're going to vote for, like they're going to draw on three things. They're going to draw on Pence, DeSantis and Trump, because those are the three people that they actually know. OK, mm -hmm. Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, Asa Hutchinson might be a little bit less known than Nikki Haley, but it's not tremendous. And they both have or um, the rest of the field has tremendous name ID disadvantages. So when if you if you imagine a future in which there's a, a, a Trump collapse, I think Republicans are more likely to coalesce around somebody like Tim Scott or Nikki Haley than any of the rest of the field, because I do think that those are people that they're well aware of and that have a, the ability to kind of build on some name ID recognition. And Larry, if we were thinking where we were well, a long time ago now, sort of 50 odd years ago, a bit, bit longer, um, at this stage of the cycle, what would like Barack Obama been polling as a sort of outsider, newcomer, uh, you know, underdog character? I mean, would he be in a, a sort of five, six, ten percent? No, he was doing better than that at this oh, okay. point. Now, he was well behind Hillary Clinton, but yeah. he wasn't so far behind that it was impossible to imagine he would become the nominee. And sure enough, that happened. So, you know, you have to look at each race separately because the conditions that prevail every four years can be dramatically different, as I think. This clearly is. We've never had a former president be the front runner for nomination and be potentially under indictment 
all over the country. There, there's so many trials potentially uh, that could go on. It's hard to keep up with them all and do your own work. We were talking about this earlier in the week on the show. Actually, even if Trump was in jail under the rules, he could still run for president. Is that right? Correct. <laughs> yes, uh, we, we've had mayors, we've had members of Congress who've been in jail for uh, different durations, maybe a year or so, and they continue to serve and continue to be popular in their constituencies. Why? It's just like Trump. They rally around somebody they think is being picked on by the establishment, by the elites, and they're going to show them by continuing to support criminals. So looking looking across this whole field then, given everything that's been lined up against Donald Trump, actually at the election last time around when he won and then again when he lost and everything that's been piled on him ever since, he's still got the support of half of Republicans this far out. Uh, presumably lots of these ones and twos and threes and fours drop out and they may well swing it behind Donald Trump. Is there any path to stopping him becoming the candidate, Rachel? Yeah, there is. And in fact, you've already stumbled upon it. So the most parallel cycle to this one is the 2008 Democratic primary between Obama and Hillary Clinton. And the reason why is that Clinton was the presumptive a nominee, basically, to all through 20, 2007. She polled in the 50s or better, and Obama polled about 20%. She also had a ton of pledge delegates, which at that time in the Democratic Party carried delegate, like count weight in superdelegates. And yet, as Obama started to gain steam through late 2007 and into the Iowa caucus, which was very early that year, he was able to win the Iowa caucus and then overtake her in South Carolina and on the delegate count with Super Tuesday. So I really think that, you know, when we look at this cycle, we're seeing that DeSantis has, there's no comparison between DeSantis and Obama, obviously, other than this mathematical reality that they are well positioned to pick up if Trump is to fall. Is there any possibility that Joe Biden isn't the Democrat candidate? We should, we should talk about the other side, you know, because he's the president. If he wants to run, normally he gets to run. Is there any path which says that he isn't the Democrat candidate, Larry? Health. If he has a serious health problem, then he would have to step aside. He would step aside, or certainly his wife, the first lady, would encourage him to step aside. And then you'd either have the vice president, Kamala Harris, or some other prominent Democrat step in, or maybe there would be a contest. But uh, barring a health difficulty, you're certainly not going to see Biden lose to Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's uh, a bit of a nutter, uh, or Marianne Williamson, who's a bit of a nutter. Those are the only two <laughs> other candidates. <clears throat> it's quite nice, Rachel, that sort of in equal opportunities. It's not the Republicans do not have a, uh, a monopoly on cranks and uh, nutters in Larry's uh, face. Robert, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. Brits will think, oh, it's a Kennedy. He'll be just like JFK. He sounds nice. And he's essentially an anti-vac crank. Is that fair? Yeah. Uh, I was going to say, yes, there's always extremism in both parties. The the issue is that in the Democratic Party, you see people like Robert F. Kennedy Jr., an anti-vax conspiracy theorist, and Miriam Williamson, who's like a new age Hollywood star. Um, but they don't have power in the party. They don't hold committee assignments. They aren't certainly running the House of Representatives. They're very marginalized. And we continue to see Democratic extremists, people running on that for that party as ex- from an extremist position, lose. We just saw a whole host of, of social you know, Democrats lose in, in Denver. So, you know, the extremism party is a 
pro problem is always a problem in, in any political movement, you're going to have extremism, but it really, it is very asymmetric in terms of the Republican and Democratic Party. Scott, then quick fire, quick fire round. Who will be the two candidates at the next election and who's going to win? You've got to be kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Ra Rachel, if you're smart, you'll use the same answer. Rachel, <laughs> go on. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to say, right? But I think that it, it's going to probably come down to a DeSantis and Biden matchup. And I think that DeSantis is a much more formidable candidate than Trump. I, if I am just trying to win, then I, I want Trump to be the nominee. I mean, it, it, people think, oh, well, they said he was unelectable in 16. Well, it's a different kind of unelectability when you have espionage charges, right? Yeah. But um, ultimately, I think DeSantis is a stronger candidate. I think that the base is going to need an exit ramp. I don't think anyone is adequately prepared one other than DeSantis. So I think the odds are pretty good it will be him. And it will be a very competitive race. There you are. You see, Larry, that's how you answer the question. <laughs> well, I think, that, I think that was a very fair summary, but I'm going to stick my neck out and say at least one part of it will turn out not to happen. Which part? <laughs> I don't know. Larry Sabato there. Professor Larry Sabato, founder director of the University of Virginia's Center for Politics and the election analyst and political strategist Rachel Bitterkoffer. Well, overnight, we got the news that Donald Trump's been indicted in the criminal investigation into how, how hundreds of classified documents ended up in his Florida home after he left the White House. Sean Spicer was the first of four White House press secretaries under Donald Trump. He ended up being there for just six months, but he remains a fan. I, look, if I had to put money on a candidate right now, I think Donald Trump, by all stretches of the imagination is the only viable candidate at this point. There's some X factors and a lot of time to go. But I think when you look at what it takes to become the nominee, it's it's about accumulating the requisite number of delegates. And right now, Trump has a massive advantage on that. Can you try and explain to our slightly sceptical uh, listeners in the UK, Sean, how is that possible? The guy who orchestrated the riot on the Capitol, the guy who won't accept the result, the guy who tried to overturn the result, the guy who's got all these legal cases against him. How is it possible that he's still the front runner to be the Republicans candidate? Well, I think there's two questions you're asking, Matt. One is, first, how is it possible? One is, in, in the way the system works is that primarily you, you go through a bunch of the early states, then we go to a Super Tuesday. So you look at Iowa's going to be the first state, then New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina. If you win those first four states, it's almost impossible for somebody to catch up. Uh, now, I'm not saying he's going to win all four, but right now he's got a lead of anywhere from 20 to 35, 40 points in each of those early states. We've got a plenty of time between now and next you know, January and February for somebody to, to make a run at him. But if you're this far out and you've got that kind of a lead over 50%, meaning it's not a plurality, you've got a majority yeah. of the voters in those states. Then I think that says it to the broader point of your question. I think what a lot of people forget who aren't conservative grassroots voters is that Trump came to office and a lot of people were very skeptical of his credential. He had been a former Democrat. He had voiced support for a lot of liberal causes, but he became probably one of the greatest conservative uh, leaders in terms of achievements uh, that, that the movement's ever seen. Three Supreme Court justices that stood up for life. Uh, building the border wall, being strong against immigration, uh, renegotiating trade deals that he didn't think were fair, cutting taxes. I mean, these are all things that had been part of conservative orthodoxy. And for a lot of conservatives, for ye years, been told, well, here's why we can't do something. Trump got it all done in 40 years. And a lot of them are saying, well, if he got that done in four, I'm willing to overlook a lot 
to get four more years of that. It, it does seem like one of the great sort of paradoxes in the way of Donald Trump, that he achieved things, permanent things, which, you know, lots of people pass through politics, they don't ever sort of achieve anything uh, in their name, whether, you know, whether it's domestically or tilting the uh, US approach to China, you know, so, some of what he did on the, on the world stage. But... Uh, it's interesting that there is that split between the people who can only see the good and the people who can only see the bad. There doesn't seem to be much overlap. That's right. I mean, we've definitely become a very, very polarized nation. But I think what's helping Trump is the contrast, right? You look at the economy. When Trump left office, inflation was about 1%. It's reached record levels here in the United States, which makes us feel everything we've had. People flowing over our southern border, people who are on the terrorist watch list coming into the country. I mean, the, the levels of illegal immigration has hit epic proportions. Um, you've seen a, a culture shift that I've never seen in my lifetime occur in, in this kind of quickness. You look at foreign policy, you mentioned it. You realize Putin didn't invade or annex a, another country for the first time in a presidency since Putin came onto the world stage. You look at North Korea, Iran, Japan, I mean, excuse me, China, gosh, I apologize to Japan. Yeah. But you look at all these countries being much more provocative. We are a much more unstable nation since Trump left office. So Joe Biden, the guy who came to office claiming to be the healer, the uniter, the, the person who had the foreign policy experience to, to build back relationships has gone completely in the opposite way. And for a lot of Americans on a daily basis, they watch Biden and they don't think he's up to the job because of how old he is and whatever. And it's not like he's passing the torch to the next generation, as he said he would as a candidate. So I, I think for those reasons, I think a lot of people wrongly focus on style versus then the substance. Because if you look objectively at Trump versus Biden, I think that even some skeptics are willing to concede that Trump actually had the country moving in a much better direction. They just may not have liked him personally or stylistically. How does it make you feel as an American and a, and a Democrat, sort of with a small D Democrat, that someone like Donald Trump could become president, behave in the way that he did, leave office in the manner that he did, and still be a favourite to return there? And what does that tell you about the state of America, the state of democracy in America? So there's two things that come to mind. Number one, we've had a lot of great, orators and campaigners who have sought or become president. I mean, I think Barack Obama, regardless of what you might think of him, was an excellent at giving speeches and he was an excellent order. He could go out and captivate an audience and get them to buy in. The whole notion of hope when he first ran, a lot of people bought into it. And I think he was a disaster as a president in terms of the policies. Um, even for a lot of conservatives, I worked in the Bush administration. I have, I, I, um, and like have a lot of admiration for George W. Bush. But, you know, in terms of some of the deals that he cut, I don't know that they were the most conservative. He expanded government in a lot of ways uh, that I don't wholly agree with. Now, does that mean he's a bad person? No. But I think that when you're asking, and this gets back to the question of what do you think? I think the question sort of comes down, do you want a lot of rhetoric or do you want results? Because at the end of the day, it is a continuum. You can get the, the rhetoric and not like the results. I mean, Joe Biden came in saying he was going to be the unifier. He was going to care about people who didn't vote for him as much as he has. That's completely not true. He has, on a variety of topics, misled the country. And so the question is, do you want the happy talk or do you want results? And I, I think, you know, in, in a perfect world, I would say we would love both. <laughs> but, but that's not how the world works. And I think it's, it's like, 
when people say, well, if you were five, you know, six, 10, would you play basketball for a living? And if that's great, but we don't have those choices. You know, we're, we're given certain choices and certain people have flaws and, and, you know, accomplishments and things that make them great, great attributes. So you have to make a choice as to what your priorities are. You mentioned you didn't think George W. Bush was a bad person. Do you think Donald Trump's a bad person? Uh, no, I think he's, I mean, I, I look, has, do I think a lot of people think he is and do a lot of people have bad experiences? Yes, but that's not how I judge people. I judge people on the experiences that I've had with them. Uh, or, you know, has, you know, and, and in his case, he's been a good friend and supportive. I, I get, I mean, I've watched some other people. I understand why they may not share that view. But I think that there are people that I know around, frankly, I don't even want to make it about every politician. I mean, look, there are people that I know don't like me. I understand that. I respect it. I, I wish it weren't the case. Uh, but I know that I'm loved by a lot of people, my family, my friends. And are there things that Donald Trump does that I don't agree with sometimes or, you know, language that he uses? Yes. But I guarantee you, if you ask the same of almost every person outside of some saints, you'll have a, a, a similar feeling that, you know, the question is, where's that continuum? I wanted to ask you, back in 2017, after not long after you, um, you, you left the White House, I think, you said, when and if Mike Pence runs in 2024, I would pr- proudly play any role he asks. Yeah. He's now said this week he's running. Are you going to play a part? <laughs> wow, you did your research. Uh, I don't think anybody foresaw the circumstances where he'd be facing off against President Trump. I think if President Trump had finished his second term, then, then I think Mike Pence would have a case to be made. I just don't see that case right now. So, so, would, you so work for Trump? would you work for Trump again? No. And it's not personal. I, I, I've been in politics and government for 30 years, almost 30 years. I, I finally got to a place where I, I can spend more time with my family. I've actually you know, made a little bit more money than I did in government. I've served my time, 24 years in the military, several terms serving people in Congress, time in the White House. Uh, it, it is time to pass the baton to, to other folks who have are willing to take that on. But I, will I support him? Yeah. Um, I'm just not I'm not going to put my family through through that ordeal again. You strike me as a bad, Sean. You're amazing,ly forgiving, giving everything you went through, right from the the, the sort of inauguration and the argument about the size of the crowds and the alternative facts, and you you rode that you know very short lived wave, and then for a time with you know you were the punchline to everything because of your association with Donald Trump. You're still you're 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 quite a forgiving man. Other people might not be quite so so fair to the guy who landed you in all of that. Well, I think there's a, a few things. One. Uh, there is a, a degree of personal responsibility. I wasn't, you know, it wasn't a prison sentence. I, I there, so you know, you have to take responsibility for the choices you make. No one forced me to do those things. Meaning, I, I chose to serve. I don't think I clearly understood the the full, you know, how what it would lead to. I had been watching different press secretaries and different people for quite some time. Uh, nobody's had that experience that I did. But but number two is, I would just say, as 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 a Christian, we're we're taught to forgive people. So that's pretty much my nature to the point of your question. And number three is, I I would just say that there's more to a lot of the stories than a lot of people are willing to accept. And and I've written a book called The Briefing where I try to lay out a lot of that because I don't think people, people want to believe how certain events occurred. Sometimes there's you know, more truth than not, but a lot of these stories that have made for great folklore are not based entirely in fact. And I think the problem is- and no, but but and that's why I'm saying that I think people yeah, go, how yeah. did you forget? It's well, like, well, if they weren't the ones responsible for the incident or the event, then it's hard to blame them for something. But I think that there is a media narrative that somehow wants to put the blame uh, uh, on Donald Trump for everything that went wrong. 
when, you know, there are people I do blame for certain things. Um, but I will also say this lastly, is that one of the qualities that I, I think is important in people and I've tried to live my life by is, is one of loyalty. When people give you a position of trust, and that's just, uh, that's not just a job, Matt. I mean, that's being a good coworker, being a good friend. If you betray that trust and that loyalty, then I, I think then you're not particularly a person that I would want to hang out with. Uh, final question there, which is sort of the exam question of, of what we're talking about today. Who is going to be the Democrat and Republican candidate at the next election? And who do you think will win? Well, right now I do. I mean, look, I, I think you have to go with what you know. And what you know is that Trump, in terms of the delegate math and how it's all laying out, he is by far uh, the front runner. Is there a path for Ron DeSantis? Yes. I believe that he or any other candidate needs to knock Trump off in one or two of the first early states. That's New Hampshire, Iowa, Nevada, or South Carolina. If you can't do that, you head into Super Tuesday. I don't see any way you can be stopped. On the Democratic side, look, Joe Biden is the nominee, despite some some um, opposition from people like Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's now at 20-something percent. They're shutting out any discussion. So, like, barring some event, I mean, there's Trump's got some some legal issues. There's some health issues on Biden's standpoint. I, if those things prohibit them, then, then that's the X factors. And you can never predict the X factors. But if you were a betting person today, those are the two people I'd put money on. And who wins in that battle? A rerun of the last time of 2020? So, look, right now I would give Trump a small edge. But the one thing that I've learned over 30 years of doing campaigns is mechanics matter. Getting out that vote, did did the you know you saw the Republican National Committee in the last twenty four hours have talked about this new project to quote bank your vote. They are really uh, welcoming this idea of early voting that that a lot of Republicans have been apprehensive about embracing. Uh, I don't particularly like it. Meaning, I don't. I, I I'm a I'm a same day voter kind of guy, but I understand that if if we're going to win, we have to adapt. Yeah. Uh, so the question is. Mechanically, look, if you go back over several cycles, we are running close elections when it ter- when it turns of electoral votes and, and what it takes in each of these states. I mean, two, 2016, I think Michigan was 10,000 votes. So I think the answer to your question is tell me some, some mechanical issues that are happening in that week leading up to the election. I can tell you who wins. But barring that, it's going to be tight. And that's all we've got time for on the podcast today. If you like the sound of it, don't forget you can join me live on the radio Monday to Friday, 10 till 1. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. Goodbye.